Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm Linda Elder coming to you from the Foundation for Critical Thinking, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in California. This series is entitled Critical Thinking Revealed. And in this series, we are focused on the climate crisis specifically. And I am interviewing Dr. Alex Hall. We will be in this interview revealing some of his critical thinking. And I want to begin by first welcoming you. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hall. Thank you, it's great to be here. I love thinking, thinking about thinking. <laughs> so Dr. Hall is a professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences and an expert in climate change. He is a member of the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, specializing in regional climates, global climate change, and climate modeling. He uses observed data as well as numerical models to understand the dynamics of climate variability and climate change. His work also focuses on developing regional earth system models and studying the climate from a regional perspective, particularly in Los Angeles and California to lay the groundwork for an understanding of climate change at scales most relevant to people and ecosystems. And Dr. Hall will help us unpack this as we move forward in this interview. Dr. Hall has also been developing a sustainability demonstration garden for about eight years. And in this garden, he incorporates native plants. So I look forward to talking with you about that. So let us begin to unpack this introduction by asking you what is and atmospheric um, and what well, what is atmospheric and oceanic science for those of us who are not? Right. <clears throat> yeah, the um, the atmospheric and oceanic sciences focus on what we call the fluid envelope around the earth, which is um, the atmosphere and the ocean. And um, the land surface is also included in there um, because we have a lot of information exchanged among the atmosphere, the ocean, and the land surface, um, heat, um, and energy, um, water, um, and momentum are all exchanged among these different components. So we have a kind of a holistic um, science around this part of the earth that's very relevant for life, which is the atmosphere, the ocean, the land surface. And, and um, together they create, you know, the climate, which is, um, you know, the, the, the long-term uh, statistics of the atmosphere and the, and the weather. Mm -hmm. And you use numerical models for understanding climate variability. So can you explain that a bit? Yeah, the the um, you know in science we have um, you know so the natural sciences are a, a dialogue between theory and observations. Um, so you know scientists come up with theories and then they test them against observations and then they revise their theories. And um, in the realm of climate, the um, the closest thing we have to theory are 
um, numerical models. And these are, these are basically the equations that govern the motion of the atmosphere and the ocean. Um, they, they can't be solved with pencil and paper methods. Um, um, they have to be solved um, with, um, they're, they're so complex and they're, they're, they have to be solved with um, what we call numerical methods where a computer will, um, will basically divide the, the earth up into pieces and solve the equations of motion of the atmosphere and the ocean um, for us. Um, and so that's how we, um, we encapsulate the, the kind of theory of the atmosphere and the ocean um, in, in something that we, that we call a, a model. And it's a numerical model because it is, we're using a computer to solve the equations. Using various formulas. Yeah, basically we're, 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 we're um, dividing the, um, the atmosphere and the ocean, the land surface up into, into pieces. And each one of those is represented by a, a number, say, um, if you wanna look at how temperature varies, for example. And then we have equations that describe how um, how that variable, you know, gets expressed. And those equations um, are solved with the computer. So we call it a numerical model. This helps illuminate why we can't, as lay people, just look at the weather and say, oh, things are getting worse or things are getting better. Because that's just, as it were, it can be anecdotal. And in some places in the country, where people are not experiencing what they, they don't feel that things have changed that much personally. They say, well, the weather's about what it always has been. And it rains about as much as it always has. So what's the problem? So I'm talking now about people who are denying right. this reality. Yeah, I mean, so we, we you know, the observations, um, the, that's the, um, the, the other pillar of science besides theory is the observations, right? And the observations are really critical also. Um, but to really understand the impact of humans on climate, we need to collect observations over the whole planet. Um, and we need to collect them over a long period of time. Um, so no one person's observations at any one given location, even if they're very quantitative, um, you know, are really good enough. We have to look at this from a very large global perspective to really document and understand how climate is changing and and um, and and really very robustly describe the trends um, in climate. So um, we can't rely on one person's observations. We have to rely on our on our on our total view of the planet. Um, and so, so that's, that's one, you know, one issue. Um, um, and then, you know, to understand the role of humans in climate, we have to have a dialogue between theory and observations. And this is where we bring back, back in the models, um, because the models are theoretical tools that we can use to test hypotheses about how the climate system works. Um, so, for example, we can do experiments with the models. Um, they're like virtual simulation laboratories. We can um, we can impose the observed increase in greenhouse gases on these models, um, and we can also suppress the observed increase in greenhouse gases. And we have two alternative realities 
um, one with the human increase in greenhouse gases and one without. And then we can compare that to observations um, and we can ask which one matches the observations the best. And it turns out that it's the model simulations that include the human increase in greenhouse gases that match the observations the best. And that's one very powerful piece of evidence that we have that there's a human influence on climate because our theoretical understanding where we include the greenhouse gas emission increases um, matches the observed changes. And this is really you know, the essence of science, right? Getting the dialogue between observation and theory and testing different hypotheses and seeing which ones match the observations the best. Hmm. So you have had a quite a long career, professional career, and you have been focusing on this issue for a long time. What questions have driven your own thinking in the field? I think that, you know, I was always drawn to the field of climate science um, as a, as a you know, very young person when I was just starting out um, because it involves some very fundamental question around the relationship between humans and the natural world. Um, global ch climate change is so compelling to me because it is the probably the, the most, the clearest example we have of a global human influence on, on the environment. And um, there's no more, you know, really for me, there's no more important question than what is our relationship with the natural world, um, given that we are having a global impact. Mm -hmm. um, so I find it, find it very, I've always found it to be a very compelling question. So from the very beginning, let's say, of your career as a student, you were asking these questions. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, that's what drew me to the field. I, you know, I, I, um, I think, you know, science has, of course, a lot to say about, um, about, you know, in terms of making our impact very quantitative. Um, and and being very rigorous about about it, and that was you know something that attracted me to um, this field from a scientific perspective. But you know more deeply, it's it's really about what kind of species do we want to be, and what do we want our relationship with the natural world to be. And um, up until now, you know, I, and up until maybe the past few decades or so, we haven't been very thoughtful about that. We've just been taking and taking and taking and not really thinking about the consequences. So have your question, the questions that have driven you professionally, have those questions changed much over your 25 plus years of work in the field or have they been fundamentally the same? Yeah, there have been, there have been changes. Um, you know, the initial work that I did was <clears throat> focused on you know, how greenhouse gases, how much they warm, how much they will warm the planet. You know, what that's a very fundamental question of climate science is what, how much warming do we get when we increase greenhouse gases and how much does the climate change? Um, and um, 
over time, um, I realized that climate change is colliding with other deep sustainability challenges. Um, and that if we really want to address our, again, our relationship with the natural world, we have to look at these sustainability challenges very holistically, including not only climate, but other pieces of the puzzle. Um, so an example of this is um, the increase in wildfire and that we've seen globally um, over the past few years. This is a phenomena that um, the climate science community didn't, didn't actually predict. Um, you know, we knew, we predicted the changes in the physical system, like the warming, um, but this increase in wildfire, um, which we now call like a mega fire era that we're in right now, um, that's something that that emerged um, in the observations. And, and you know, it, it, it really underscored for me the need to include an understanding of ecosystems in in our in 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 our um, in our explorations and, and and attempts to understand the behavior of of wildfire um, and also there's a human component too um, because humans are affecting wildfire too and, and very directly um, through ignitions and the way we manage our wildlands um, so it's a very deep and complex sustainability challenge. Of course, it involves climate. We know that the warming has caused wildfires to become larger and more intense, but there are many other pieces of the puzzle um, and we have to take all those into account if we wanna understand and eventually predict and manage our, 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 our wildfires. Um, so I think I've become much more holistic about the disciplines that are involved um, in this general question around our relationship with the natural world. And, um, and I've become much more interested in other, um, other disciplines, I would say, and, and their role in, in the sustainability challenge. So that leads me to this question. Now, let me just say that you are a member of the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. And the, the, the part of the mission is envisioning a future that is beautiful and prosperous in 2050, air, water, food, people, and nature. As humanity urbanizes, the story of how we save the planet will be written by cities like Los Angeles, by multicultural universities like UCLA, and by innovators who break down silos of disciplinary scholarship. Now, I just I want to focus first on the last part of that because that's the part that I think you were um, just focused on yourself. So, one of the problems with academia has always been overspecialization. Increasingly, is a problem, and this is increasingly a problem. And it seems that the issues that we're focused on here um, are in part um, existing because of this lack of interdisciplinary thinking. So uh, the experts in, in these various parts that 
relate to climate change are over here doing, somebody's over here focused on the ocean, somebody's over here focused on the air, and somebody's over here focused on the land, and somebody over here is focused on pollution. And so, so I think what you're saying is that won't work. We've got to be much more interdisciplinary and think of the whole, all of this as in, as interrelated systems of understandings. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Uh, we need, um, you know, it's tricky because we need the disciplines. We need people to have deep expertise and understanding in their fields. And the university is organized around disciplines for a reason. It's because it requires, you have to create depth um, of understanding in a field. Um, the problem is that almost all environmental challenges involve multiple disciplines and it goes beyond the sciences, of course, into policy um, and the social sciences and you know, even the humanities um, are, are, you know, have to be key, key players here. Um, and so um, we have to find ways to engage across disciplines um, while also, you know, maintaining disciplinary integrity. <laughs> um, and, um, and so it's, it's a very tricky thing. And one thing that I am thinking about a lot is, you know, how do we reduce these transaction costs um, um, across, you know, because every time I interact with someone in a different field, it takes a lot of time for me to figure out, you know, what they're up to and what motivates them and um, how, how does their field work um, and how do they get their funding and so on. So there's a, there's a, what I call transaction costs there. Um, and so we have to figure out how to reduce those so that people can much more seamlessly collaborate. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely necessary. Exactly how to do it is not, I think, totally clear. And I don't think any university has really cracked this code here. <laughs> so that's part of how some of your questions have changed, it sounds like. So in the beginning, it seems that you were focused more on just getting the answers to the questions about the climate within mm -hmm. your field. Mm -hmm. yep. Now it's more about how do we work together effectively yes yes so exactly. we need so we need both the depth and the breadth yes exactly and that's 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 much easier said than done um but yes we do we do need we do need those things and the other thing that we need is engagement um of the academy in the wider world um you know because we we have a mentality of in the university of just being knowledge creators and being interested in knowledge creation for its own sake which is great and you know i don't i we we still need we still that's still a very beneficial activity um and and even in environment sustainability related fields it's a beneficial beneficial activity but we also need to make sure that we're creating the right knowledge products for the world outside the university and the in the academic community um and we need to, to make sure that they are useful and are used by um the decision makers who are actually 
the, the, the stewards of the natural world on some, on, you know, the most important stewards are, are the decision makers and the people who work in, you know, the various government agencies, for example, that are responsible for managing our, our ecosystems mm -hmm. um, and making policy around things like carbon emissions and, and energy generation. So, um, so it's, it's a, it's, it's both building interdisciplinary connections and also building those connections to the outside world. So then it's not just about learning in terms of trying to figure out what the problems are and what the solutions are. It's a matter of getting those solutions out into the world. Right. And, and it's a, you know, one thing that we've learned, we've learned a little bit about how to do this. And we know that it's not, it's not a matter of us creating knowledge and then disseminating it and communicating it. It's about us engaging with the outside world and making sure that we're developing the right knowledge products over time in constant consultation with the outside world. Um, that's how we, that's really how we will succeed in making change um, and actually materially affecting how we manage our relationship with the natural world. Um, and that's, that's you know, the challenge of environmental research and sustainability research is we want it to be actionable and we want it to actually influence the way we interact with the natural world in a material way. Um, so that requires constant engagement with, with you know, the outside world. Now, in terms of the, you've worked with many students over many years, I'm assuming. Do you, do you see students thinking, changing, let's say, in terms of advocacy um, or actually going out and trying to help create policy change? Have you, have you seen that happen over time? Do you see more students doing that today than let's say 25 years ago, or maybe you can't answer that? Oh, no, there's been a big change um, in the mentality of students. Um, the, the young, you know, the, 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 the students who are kind of in, 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 in school now, um, this is the kind of the leading edge of Gen Z um, in, in, in college and graduate school. They are um, by and large, very adept at multidisciplinary thinking. Um, they're very flexible thinkers. Um, and they are also quite, um, they're, 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 they're um, pretty angry, I would say, about the state of the world and the, the world that they seem to have inherited. And they're quite impatient um, when it comes to seeing change. Um, so I actually think they have the right attributes for, you know, from a generational kind of in a generational sense, they have the right general attributes to address these challenges. They're, they're interdisciplinary by nature and they are um, definitely pretty active um, in, and engaged with, with the world. Um, so I have, I have a lot of hope in that sense. I think that they, <laughs> 
are um, they're very well suited for this this particular type of challenge. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to a question. I'm going to preface it a bit. This, I'd like you to explain this statement. As humanity urbanizes, the story of how we save the planet will be written by cities like Los Angeles. Now, um, in a recently published article in the LA Times, you were quoted as saying, um, California is absolutely moving in the right direction, unquote, toward becoming more resilient and sustainable. At the moment, this says uh, that you warn, change isn't happening on a scale that's large enough to make a meaningful difference, but that you have hope. And in your quote is saying, I think the fact that we're thinking about these things so deeply and that we have examples of challenges where we have made a start on identifying the underlying problems and building the infrastructure to generate solutions that we now have experiences that the foundation that you need to make more profound change at scale. So my, my question is, and, and let me again, let me add a bit more. So I, I note that for example, Singapore, which is a monstrous island city with buildings is trying to do some innovative things to cool the city down, including taking buildings that are by a pond and, and planting trees and other plants that bring the cool air into the buildings. And yet when I fly over Los Angeles, I see wall to wall to wall to wall to wall what look like to be industrial buildings. So what, what, what is being done in Los Angeles and why do you, why do you say that or why why is it that LA is going to be sort of a key player here in your view? Well, Los Angeles is really a fascinating place because it's really a product of the of the thinking of the twentieth century. Um, you know, it's a, a it's a product of a mentality where you know we could we thought we could dominate nature and engineer our way out of natural resource challenges. And so a city like LA has, um, you know, giant freeways and, um, and huge um, aqueducts bringing water from, from, you know, up to a thousand miles away. Um, you know, it's just, it's just this, it's just this mentality of engineering everything and being able to engineer nature and, 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 and bend it to our purposes. Um, and so, it starts from a baseline of being pretty messed up. <laughs> and um, that's, I think what makes it interesting is that, um, you know, so I guess, let me back up for a second. In that sense, you know, I think LA really epitomizes our, our environmental, the, the planet's environmental challenges. Most places, most developing places in the world are more like LA um, than, you know, cities that, um, are are kind of naturally more sustainable, um, and so it's a very relevant example in that sense. Um, and I think also it's unique in the sense that there's there is political will in in Los Angeles to change and to retrofit this kind of twentieth century city to something that's 
better suited for um, a more environmentally oriented mindset and a more more sustainable city. Um, so an example of that is that you know Los Angeles is committed to wastewater recycling. You know, the, one of the big sustainability challenges in LA is uh, around water, um, and um, it's a semi-arid part of the part of the world, um, and the there are real serious questions around whether you know LA's very highly engineered waterscape um, that reaches so far into into wildlands so far away is really resilient um, in you know when we think about the future um, and and we've I've been working to point out a lot of the ways in which it's not resilient you know and where we need to be thinking much more strategically about how to cope with that so. LA has been embracing things like wastewater recycling. Um, there has been a real push to reduce, use less water in Los Angeles. Um, and the per capita water usage has been um, declining. Um, so um, that's really good news. There has been a lot of progress on outdoor irrigation and landscaping in the region. Um, and, and conversion to much more sustainable landscaping practices. Um, and there's also a lot of thinking around capturing stormwater and local water. Um, there's, 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 there are efforts around, around these things that while they're insufficient, they are um, moving in the right direction. And, and I think the overall, the, the, the decision makers in the region are, are, are thinking in the right way. It takes time, of course, to change, um, but I do think it's moving in, in the right direction. So that's one example of, I think, how LA is a is a relevant example and where it's it's making it is making progress, if if maybe not quite enough. I take it that you are an optimistic person, from what I've read of your thinking, um, and. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any defense for being an optimist. It's more <laughs> just, I think, kind of how I'm wired. Um, I, you know, I, but I do think you can't, um, you, you, you know, we need to have um, things to work towards to be productive. And so I don't see it as having any other choice. <clears throat> I feel like that's how we have, we have to be, optimistic in order to be productive. And I also think that in an environment sustainability, pessimism is an enemy mm -hmm. because it's pessimism is a recipe for paralysis. And something is better than nothing. We might not be able to quote unquote solve problems, but we can do something and we can make it better. And that's better than doing nothing. So if we're not optimistic and we're not hopeful and we just succumb to paralysis will do nothing and that's 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 the worst outcome so and this is a tremendous problem for the especially as you say the young people who are coming up today and they they enter adulthood and they say what 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 were these people thinking what 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 and they look at their parents and their grandparents like what were you people doing and how were you destroying our planet and we just figured this out. Of course, that's going to be happening at younger and younger ages where they're figuring this out. So we there is this uh, idea that we're moving into the sixth 
what would be the sixth extinction. Uh, and it, what is your view there? I guess it would dovetail with what you just said that it may well be that we're moving in that direction, but we can still do everything that we can to slow the process. Or, is that what you would say? Yes, I, I think that it's inevitable that, that we will, you know, if you look at a climate change is like a measure of this, right? Um, it's, it's an imperfect measure of our impact on the planet. And we are committed, kind of I'm putting committed in quotes, we, we, we are stuck with um, a certain amount of climate change because of our past actions and decisions. Um, and so it's inevitable that the planet's gonna continue to warm and there's gonna be associated changes in climate no matter how um, how quickly we decarbonize. Um, and there's an analogy, I think, or there's there are parallel phenomena in other realms of sustainability. There's, there's an irreversible damage that um, has occurred or, or, will, or will occur um, that we can't do anything about. But that can't stop us from taking measures to prevent the, the worst outcomes because we still do control a lot of our future around climate and around other environmental impacts. And um, if, if we allow our pessimism around the inevitable changes to paralyze us, we will not succeed in preventing the worst outcomes. Mm. So, <laughs> So it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a tricky message, right? Um, like you gotta, people have to be very clear-eyed about what's happening and what's coming. At the same time, they have to be committed to taking action to prevent it from being even worse. Mm -hmm. Well, I live in part of the year in the US South. Okay. And I see, for example, here off where I am now, often, people when they're building a house will say, trees, get rid of them. We've got to build a house on this lot, get rid of every tree. And it's very sad. And it's, and there are, you know, homeowners associations that require manicured lawns. People are mowing acres and acres of lawns with gas operated machines. They are ostracizing the people who are trying to create native gardens that are sort of raggedy looking quite often. And the, it, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to watch that. And I, I guess that's just a, a, sta a statement of sort of sadness because it seems that if that were happening a hundred years ago, I would still have difficulty understanding it. But happening today, it seems like uh, it's a, a sign of something that is showing that we still face many barriers to these changes that we hope to see occurring. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> Southern California is an example of a place where the native vegetation was simply was simply scrubbed away 
<clears throat> and it was seen as like a blank slate where people could impose their own idea of what a beautiful place is. Um, and of course that was sustained by a seemingly limitless supply of water that was imported from other places. Um, and so um, there was a mentality that of, of, of that, that whatever, whatever is here in this place, you just get rid of it. And then you replace it with this artificial environment that is to your liking. Um, and um, that's so out of sync with the idea of connecting to a place and developing a connection to the plants and the animals that, um, that are part of a place and, um, and, and being in tune with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, I actually have um, embraced um, gardening with native plants in my own garden. And um, one of the, and I did it initially because I wanted to um, conserve water, you know, because the plants that are native are adapted to thrive with the water that comes from the sky. Um, but <clears throat> I very quickly um, became very interested in the native ecosystems. And I, um, when I started to hike then in the Santa Monica Mountains and the San Gabriel Mountains, you know, around Los Angeles, I began to be able to identify plants. And I began to see how these plants that I was planting in my garden fit into an ecosystem in, an, in a wild place. And that really allowed me to connect very deeply to Los Angeles um, in a way that I just hadn't before. Before I had just seen it as a big city that had nice restaurants and museums and um, you know a, a lot a lot of great cultural life, but now I see it as a as a as part of and connected to something very precious in the wildlands around Los Angeles, and it's led me to sink down my own roots in this place and make me feel very connected to it. So there's a you might call it a spiritual um, connection that was unlocked. Um, by you know embracing the the plants and the animals that live in this place and not seeing it as something to be wiped away, um, so I don't know that, I, that that's just so, my 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 response to your comment I guess but yeah well I think that the human animal tends to resonate with the human animal and we of course there are many exceptions to this but we don't necessarily relate first to other animals and then to humans. We, we tend to think of human things as the best things. And right. right, as you mentioned, and I think that's just part of our psyche. And we've all hopefully, or many of us are starting to see what you are describing, that there's a lot more to it and that we've got to have an inner relationship with the rest of nature which includes all of the earth and all of its creatures and its plants and so forth yeah and this is a you know one of the challenges for the environmental movement is that environmentalists are weirdos you know we the 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 people who connect with nature and connect with who love wild places and love nature are, that's not the norm most people are, like you said, people oriented. 
And so we have to learn how to be how to how to speak the language of everyone else. And um, you know, one way to do that is to, for example, and I use the metaphor of my garden again, or the example of my garden, you know, I I I have I work with native plants, but I have very consciously brought in very traditional garden design principles into the garden so that when someone walks into it who doesn't know anything about native plants, they can read it instantly. You know, it it, it feels like a normal garden to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they can relate to it in the way that they're used to relating to a garden. Um, but then over time, you know, as they as they spend time in it, they begin to discover that it has these layers that are, um, you know, f- that that it really at heart is is an ecological place, um, and so we have to create these entry points for people into our in, into the environmental mindset and the environmental perspective, um, and we have to we have to be very cognizant of of how people think of things. This is where you know I think you know. The other example here is like Tesla. Um, you know, Tesla initially was kind of a like a uh, I don't know what you might call it. It was like a muscle car or something like that. It was like a real. Um, mm-hmm. It was a car that that was an electric vehicle, but it appealed to a demographic that you don't normally associate with electric vehicles. <clears throat> People were buying them because they're cool. They're cool looking. They're fast. Um, those are the kinds That's of connections. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of connections that we need more of. And in that way, I think we can start to ignite social contagion because the one thing that people, the one lever that we have is that when people start doing things, other people want to do them too. And if we can exploit that need for connection that people have to make environmentally oriented activities or practices. Um, cool and 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 kind of like the right cool thing to do, then I think we can actually affect real change at scale. Yeah. So that leads to as we begin to bring this to a close, I'll just mention that I have a native garden here at my house in the south, and it's only it's been developed by the the plants that were already there. All I've done is tried to remove the imported grasses and so forth. And amazingly, all of these wonderful native seeds are sprouting. And I, when I first started doing this, I knew that it would seem odd to the neighborhood. So I put a sign up that said native garden. So when they walk by and they drive by, they say, oh, so that's what that is. So there's something in just living the example as well as any of us can. And I like your idea of uh, making it a little less shabby looking maybe than some of mine looks to people because I'm sure they look at some of my yard and they say that just looks like weeds to me so but my my garden I see on some of the native plants they're just massively filled with insects and then I walk down the road and then I see the manicured yards and I don't see any insects and I don't so it's 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 uh it's a, an educational process for us all. So as we do bring this to a close, what, I mean, all of us do need to feel that there is something that we can do and that there is hope. So what what other suggestions would you have? We have the native garden idea. 
the getting out in nature and exploring and seeing how nature works together. What, what other suggestions would you have for any of us who want to do what little we can to uh, help mitigate this problem of climate change? Well, you know, I can, I don't know what works for everybody. I can tell you what has, um, what some of my barriers have been and how I've overcome them. Um, the first barrier that I think people have is that they get overwhelmed and they, they, get, they, they, they want to quote unquote solve their problem. Um, and they want one solution. Um, and the truth is that we all have a complex relationship with the natural world through our consumption habits and through our behaviors. And there is no one silver bullet. Um, and so, um, so the first step is just not, just don't get overwhelmed. Um, and, and I have found it useful to tackle one thing at a time. And, and focus on one thing at a time. Um, so, you know, maybe it is um, in the coming year committing to beginning to transform your garden into a native garden. Um, maybe it is in the following year committing to decarbonizing your transportation, either through an electric bike or an electric vehicle um, or through public transportation. Um, and then Maybe the next year is the year of composting and reducing your carbon footprint in your waste streams. Um, you know, I'm just throwing stuff out there, but um, I found it very useful to break it up into pieces and and not try to do it all at once. Um, and 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 then you know what hap what's happened to me is over time, um, as I've built all these different kind of changes in my life into. Um, you know, as I've incorporated them, I've actually like over time in the space of just a few years, I've really kind of revolutionized my resource footprint. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think um, I, I encourage people to um, not get overwhelmed, to be incremental about it. And I guess finally, you know, is you have to be thoughtful um, because we all, and this gets back to your critical thinking mission, um, you know, we all have different resource footprints. We all live in different places. Um, and we have a different relationship with, with the natural environment by virtue of living in different places and having different needs. Um, and so, you know, where you are, it sounds like you're in the Southeast someplace, you know, water challenges are going to be less important than they are where I am in Southern California. So, um, you know, that might not be your priority there. <laughs> Um, reducing your, your, your water consumption might not be as important as, as it is for me. In, in Southern California, there's, there are carbon emissions associated with water too as it's transported. So I can reduce my carbon emissions and my impact on wildlands by reducing my water consumption in a way that you, know, you probably can't. So, and then on the flip side, there might be things that you can do there that, that, I, that are, are not as effective for me. So this is where you know, the... the the critical thinking skills are really important. We have to be critical, think critically about our different resource footprints and also weigh the trade-offs. You know, there, it's, there are real trade-offs in, in our choices 
um, and it's not black and white. Um, there are some times we need to save time and that might mean using a little bit of a resource um, because we have some other objective, you know? So it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's the last thing is just being very thoughtful about and, and prioritizing the low hanging fruit, the things that really are making the, have, gonna have the biggest impact. Well, thank you for your time and for agreeing to talk with me today. It's wonderful to see uh, people like you who are coming out of the classroom and into the other real world and helping the rest of us with solutions. So thank you for joining me today. Great, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for, for having this, uh, this forum. And thank you to all of you who have joined us. We'll see you next time.